Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Good morning, everyone. Greetings to all of you. I think they chose the wrong guy to preach during Stampede Week. Then just before I came uh, to the 9 o'clock service, they gave me this, so I believe this qualifies me to speak today. (laughs) I want to welcome all those uh, who are tuning in from uh, one of our regionals or uh, catching our uh, uh, broadcast online, so we are so happy that you can join us. You know, it blessed my heart to hear from Benny as a fellow Indian. I really appreciate what God has done in his life. It's just tremendous, and the potential that he has as he goes back to India to start this ministry to young people in Bangalore. I am just so excited for him, and we are so grateful to God for what he has done in his life. And that is an example of what God can do when we give ourselves to him. So thank you, Benny, for coming and sharing with us today. You know, last week we began the summer series uh, titled Into the Wild, and uh, Pastor Ken Preby opened with uh, a sermon that talked about how God has made all of us for a mission. When we hear the word mission, we immediately identify with moving or going out. But being missional is not just going here and there with the gospel, and that is why we need the counterpart or the twin of the word missional, which is the word incarnational. There's an overdose of uh, teaching and sermons on what it means to be missional, but we don't hear very often about what it means to be incarnational. See, if missional is about going, then incarnational is about our posture, how we go, our mannerisms. And I believe because of the example of Jesus, the posture of incarnation calls us to walk on the downward road. An article in Forbes magazine titled Most Powerful People 2012 begins with these words. There are 7.1 billion people in the world, but these are the 71 who matter the most. Starting with Barack Obama, you can see a star-studded list of celebrities, people from all spheres of life, the people who have the power and who run the planet Earth. And Forbes magazine used four categories to determine these people of power. And as you look at these categories, it will tell you how the world around us perceives power and authority. The first category was whether the candidate had power over lots of people. Secondly, they assessed the financial resources controlled by these people and whether they are relatively large compared to their peers. Then they determined if the candidate was powerful in multiple spheres. To explain that point, the article said, uh, we have only 71 slots in our list. That is one people for every 100 million. So one people chosen out of every 100 million. So being powerful in one area is just not enough. And lastly, they wanted to make sure if the candidate actively used their powers. And to give an example, they said Russian President Vladimir Putin scored points in this area because he so frequently shows his strength, like by jailing his protesters. Ah, 
This is how the world around us perceives power. The ability to throw your weight around that is given to a select few people. If Forbes existed during Jesus' time, do you think Jesus would make the cut for one of the most powerful people of his time? I think Jesus would fail miserably in light of the four criteria set forth. And it is because Jesus deliberately chose to walk on the downward road. The cultural push for upward mobility is so huge today. It's all about climbing the ladder of success and making it to the top. Being rich and successful and influential and powerful. From our early years, we get this one message drummed into our ears. Aim to make it to the top. Aspire to reach your highest potential. Set your visions and goals on high. Pastor Bill Hybels says, just as a compass needle points to the north, in the same way the human needle points in one direction, upward. And there is a, a tendency within all of us to promote ourselves to work for our self-exaltation. But in total contrast is the way of Jesus. He calls us to walk on the downward road. In fact, the New Testament presents this downward road as the road to true greatness. And the greatest example and demonstration of that downward road is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So this morning, we're going to look at a, a passage from, from, in Scripture, Philippians 2, 5 to 11. And many believe that this was a, a Christian hymn that was uh, sung in the early church. I'm going to ask you to stand up as we read Philippians 2, 5 to 11 together. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, this morning we come before your presence. O humble and meek Jesus, would you come and minister to us today and teach us what it means to walk in this downward road? that through your example, through your demonstration, we would be able to learn lessons that we can apply today to our lives. So that by the power of your spirit, would you come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 2008, a movie named Slumdog Millionaire became very popular and won several Academy Awards. The storyline in this movie is about a kid who grows up in the slums of Mumbai who has such a tough life but manages to go and reach the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire show and uh, wins the grand prize. You know, we love to hear stories about slum dogs becoming millionaires, but how often do we hear about 
millionaires voluntarily choosing to become slum dogs. And yet, that is exactly what Jesus Christ did when he came down here to earth. He became a slum dog. In this passage that we read in Philippians 2, we can see almost a pictorial depiction of Jesus' downward descent. Just as you climb down a set of stairs, in the same way Jesus takes one step down after another. He starts from the very top. The passage presents Jesus as God. The creator God who had all the power limited himself to become a human. Jesus did not leave his divinity behind. He was 100% God. But at the same time, he was also 100% man. So the Son of God, who's part of the Trinity, who existed from time immemorial, limited himself to time and space, and he became a human being. This is the greatest of all miracles. And then you see in this passage that Jesus doesn't stop there. He takes one more step downward. He became not just a human, but he became a slave, the lowest of all humans. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. He came as a servant. Can you go any lower than this and Jesus take yet another step downward? He's not just a human, not just a servant, but you see that the giver of life dies. The greatest of all paradoxes, the immortal one, faces death. And even as we express a sense of wonder and gratitude to Jesus, we see that Jesus takes yet another step downward. You cannot go any lower than this. This is the lowest rung in the ladder. This is the lowest place that the ancient world could conceive in their mind. Death on a cross. From his birth till his death, Jesus humbled himself every step of the way. In the words of Henry Nguyen, the whole life of Jesus was a life in which all upward mobility was resisted. The divine way is the downward way. And here in Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul exhorts us by saying, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. So the mindset or thought pattern of Christians should be the same as Jesus. We are called to follow his example. Who is Paul writing this letter to? He's writing this to a church in Philippi about 2,000 years ago, and he's asking them to do something so radical. If we think this passage is countercultural today, it was even more in the early church in the first century. John Dixon, in his book, Humilitas, points out that humility was not a virtue of old. The ancient Greeks loved honor and despised shame. So in the minds of a father during those ancient times, their desire for their son is not that the son would be successful, he would make lots of money, or live a good moral life, but the pertinent expectation was, will the son bring honor to the family? 
there are a number of cultures which still operate according to this pattern, the honor-shame culture. And that is why you hear about honor killings. It's better to kill somebody than let them bring shame to the family. So humility was not seen as a virtue in Jesus' time. It only had a negative connotation of being humiliated or humbled. But Jesus, by his example, gave humility a new meaning, an altogether new meaning, and he elevated it into a virtue. The incarnation says a lot about God, who he is, and how he operates. And if the way God engages the world is through incarnation, then he has presented us a model to follow. The way we would do our ministries, the way we would reach out to our neighbors ought to be the incarnational model. So how do we put this into practice? How does this apply for us today? Firstly, the downward road calls us to serve and not hold on to our rights. It calls us to serve and not hold on to our rights. So in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, we see, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus was not a prophet or an angel or a heavenly being. This is God incarnate. And this passage is one of the clearest passages in the New Testament where the divinity of Jesus is being affirmed clearly. So the pre-existent Jesus, who is co-equal with the Father, occupies the highest place in heaven. All of the heavenly angels and the heavenly hosts and the angels give their worship to Jesus. And he leaves all of that behind to come into this world. He gives up his rights and never exercises his divine privileges when he lived on earth. He chose the downward road, never sought to put himself in a position of advantage. See, leadership today is expressed in terms of power and authority, but Jesus was powerless. God sent Jesus as a baby. Babies are awfully cute, but they're not very useful when it comes to missions. Babies are not productive. In fact, their only productivity is seen in the diapers they fill. <laughs> God could have dropped Jesus from the sky as a wise old saint who will come up with these profound words and share with people, but he chose to come like everybody else like a baby, fragile and delicate and depending on parents for survival. Jesus was born in a family of no honor because his mother was pregnant before marriage. He was born in a very poor family. At the time of Jesus' dedication in the temple, Mary and Joseph could not afford a lamb as a sacrifice, so they bring two doves. And in Leviticus, you see that that was the offering that was prescribed for the poor. Refugees come to Canada from all around the world. And when you sit and talk with a refugee family, you would hear gut-wrenching stories. 
a couple of years ago, about 500 Sri Lankan refugees, along with 50 children, came to Vancouver and landed there. And they came on a boat starting from Thailand, and they sailed for four months in the tough seas and then made it to Canada seeking asylum. And in the news, it was uh, projected like this, that it's a miracle that they even survived because the boat that they used was so primitive, you wouldn't even go fishing on it. Some of these refugee families come to our new Canadian Friendship Center, so I've heard their stories firsthand. These heart-wrenching stories of pathetic things that people have gone through and now running for life and seeking protection somewhere. And when these guys go through this, there's somebody who understands and identifies with them because he has gone through the same route. He understands what it means to be unwanted, rejected, undocumented, and fleeing for life. His name is Jesus. You see, in Matthew 2, verses 13 and 14, the angel of the Lord speaking to Joseph, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt. When you have to flee your country and go somewhere to a new place overnight worrying about your life, it is not a pleasant experience. Jesus understands what it exactly means. As a youth, he probably took up his dead father's business and therefore was deprived of higher education. So some of you are regretting that you don't have higher education. Jesus didn't have it either. If Jesus walked in a shopping mall today, nobody would take notice. They never noticed him when he walked here on earth. He was so normal, so ordinary. And at the age of 30, Jesus was a tremendous underachiever. No house, no exciting career, no wife and kids, still not settled in life according to our modern standards. Jesus did not choose this worst surroundings at the time of his birth and his life, but even his death. And we see in verse 8 here, Philippians 2, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. There were three types of capital punishment during ancient times. Crucifixion, decapitation, and burning alive. And among these, crucifixion was regarded as the most brutal and shameful. So the greatest of all took the lowest place that the ancient mind could come up with. Death by crucifixion. The early opponents of Christianity saw the crucifixion as the evidence that Jesus was not who he claimed himself to be. Archaeologists discovered an anti-Christian graffiti dating back to the 2nd or 3rd century, and it is basically a crude drawing of a man crucified on a cross with the head of a donkey. And that indicated stupidity, foolishness. It seemed ridiculous to a culture that was obsessed with honor. And all along the way, Jesus did not hold on to his rights and privileges, but rather 
He served people. He came as a servant to meet the needs of others. This one thing has such application for us today. Profound application. Our generation today is quite a contrast to the way of Jesus. We fight for our rights tooth and nail. We believe that constitutionally we are eligible for all of these rights. And therefore we have this sense of entitlement. Especially true of us who live in North America. We think that we deserve the good life. After all, I'm entitled to a happy marriage. And if my marriage is not happy, then I will find a way out. After all, I'm entitled to attend the best church. If there's something that is being said in the church to which I don't agree, then I will leave the church and find another one. After all, I'm entitled to live in the best neighborhood. So as soon as I can up my standard of living, I'll move to a new neighborhood and find a better place to live. Does it occur to us that the positions of influence that God gives us is not so much we can lead, but so that we can serve others. And we can never really serve people without giving up our rights. Service is the strongest argument for Christianity. When I was uh, studying in a seminary in India, I took a class on Christian apologetics. And I was learning about all these smart arguments that uh, proved the, the validity of the Christian faith and how to answer to all the objections that uh, people or atheists or Muslims or Hindus come up with. And just a few blocks away from our seminary was uh, a small children's home run by a, a group of Catholic nuns. I decided one day to pay a visit to this place to check it out. There must have been about 100 kids in that uh, children's home, anywhere from a, a three-month-old baby to kids who were 14 or 15 years old. And they all had one thing in common. They all were HIV positive. And so these kids, for the most part, were, their parents had either died or had completely forsaken them. They didn't want to do anything with these kids. They didn't have the money to pay for their medical expenses. So either they would leave these babies in the railway stations or sometimes even in the doorstep of the orphanage. So they open the gates in the morning and they see a baby in front. And because they all were affected with AIDS, their immune system was very low. When you have a kid that is sick at home, you know how difficult it can be. Imagine 100 kids who are sick with dysentery or tuberculosis or all kinds of illness that they are susceptible to. And one of the nuns told me that if they managed to cross their 12th birthday, it's a miracle. They had to bury kids almost every week. And these kids learn about Jesus. And I tell you, can anybody, anybody dare to raise a finger of accusation against what is being done in this place in the name of Jesus? The intellectual defense of the gospel is necessary but the most profound, irrefutable difference of the gospel is when we can serve people with no strings attached. It speaks volumes to the world around us. The downward road calls us to do exactly that, not to hold on to our rights, but give ourselves in service to others. Secondly, the downward road delights in the ordinary 
not just the spectacular. See in Philippians 2, 7, it says, rather he made himself nothing. And the word for nothing literally means emptied. So Jesus emptied himself. In the words of Reformation theologian John Calvin, Jesus laid aside his glory, not by lessening it, but by concealing it. Can you take a moment to ponder that? Not by lessening it, but by concealing it. The world around us tells us that if you have it, flaunt it, show off, let people know, prove yourself. And in the incarnation, we see the divinity of Jesus was not flaunted, but wailed, was not paraded, but was hidden. And we desperately need to discover the power of an ordinary life consecrated to God. We make the mistake of giving this impression that one needs to do spectacular things and it has to be quantified by numbers in order to be effective for God's kingdom. But Jesus presents to us a different model altogether. We see in John 1.14, the words from the message translation goes like this. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Jesus moved into the neighborhood and dwelt there for 30 years and was not noticed. Jesus lived for three decades anonymously in total obscurity. Nobody knew this was the Son of God. Nobody knew this was the Word of God manifested in flesh. They thought this was just yet another ordinary kid from Nazareth. Didn't Jesus have the right to dazzle people with his miraculous powers and show them who he is? Couldn't he show to ordinary human beings the spectacular powers of God? But he approached it completely differently, a silent approach of not opening his mouth for 30 years and revealing his identity to others. A number of people have speculated about the silent years of Jesus, the years of his growing up, of which we have no record in the four Gospels. The apocryphal Gospels presents Jesus' childhood years as action-packed. So Jesus, as a five-year-old, is doing miracles to impress people. But the truth is there was very little action in the first 30 years of his life, only silence. Jesus was raised in a small town called Nazareth. It was not a town of royalty. It was not a town where they had the school of the prophets. In fact, Nazareth is not even mentioned once in the Old Testament. It had probably a population of less than 2,000 people. And Jesus spent three decades of his life in an unknown place of obscurity without opening his mouth and revealing his identity. I preached my first sermon when I was 18 years old. But Jesus did not preach until he was 30. God was not in a hurry. Isn't it amazing? Jesus coming to the synagogue week after week and sitting under the teachings of other men and never felt that he wanted to stand up and preach and let people know who he is. And when Jesus finally got to speak in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown, you would imagine that all 2,000 people in the town would come down to the altar and accept who he is and accept his claims. 
Do you know what happened? We see this uh, incident in Matthew 13, verses 53 to 57. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. You see from this passage, what kept people from believing in Jesus' claims was Jesus' pedigree. He is just a carpenter's son. We know his family. We know Mary. We know all his brothers and sisters. This is such an ordinary family. No way will a Messiah come from a family like this. When somebody wins a, a medal in the Olympics, you would often hear people talk about this this way. We knew this kid always had it in him. You know, he was so gifted that this doesn't come as a surprise to us. We knew it was bound to happen. Is that how they responded in the synagogue when they heard Jesus speak for the first time? I always had a hunch this kid is going to be a prophet. He had the prophetic material in him. But rather, he was uncelebrated. They used his own family as an example to say he is not who he is claiming himself to be. And they took offense at him. Can I dare say this? Can I dare say this? Jesus did not have a magnetic personality or a charisma or good, handsome looks. We see this in Isaiah 53 too. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Nothing special about Jesus. This is the son of God. And he wasn't physically attractive or displaying a charming personality that mesmerized people. In my moments of frustration, I tell God, God, for the sake of being an effective evangelist, I want to have a dynamic personality, a magnetic personality where I can walk into a crowd and people will be just drawn to me. And then I can share about you with those people. But Jesus didn't have that charisma either. And that's why the broken ones, the ones who were ostracized, the ones who were rejected, the ones who were lowest in the rung of the ladder, they were attracted to Jesus. When you evaluate Jesus' ministry, according to how we do modern day missions, I tell you, we would be very frustrated. Jesus, can you show some urgency? You have only 33 years and your vision is so big, you want to reach the world. So we will strategize things for you and we will give you a blueprint for your life. Start preaching as a three-year-old and dazzle people with your powerful speeches. Perform miracles when you are five years old and let people know who you are. Move from Nazareth to New York. You need to be where the action happens. 
Go travel around the world, meet as many people as you can, and share about your mission. You got to use the mass media, Jesus, because you want to reach the whole world. You got to promote your message in those mediums. The 12 disciples whom you selected after spending a night of prayer, they are bummers. It's a bad choice. Get rid of them and select the best marketing and managerial minds, the sharpest minds and the brightest minds around because they can carry on your vision. And stop hanging Jesus with the prostitutes and the tax collectors and rather impact the thinkers and the opinion makers of the society. And don't forget Jesus to do fundraising because we can accomplish very little without money. And Jesus, we heard that you turned away the rich young ruler. What's wrong with you, Jesus? You see, God's way was quiet, too simple, subtle, low-tech. It was the way of incarnation. It was the downward road. And yet it reached the whole world. And I'm afraid we project the extraordinary, spectacular life as a norm for Christians. And most people are wondering, can my life be of any value? A stay-at-home mom thinks and wonders, can I be useful for God's mission? An ordinary average person asks, can my life be of any contribution to the kingdom of God? I tell you, our faithfulness is tested in the day-to-day -day mundane things of life. And we need to delight not just in the spectacular things, but in the ordinary things and commit ourselves to faithfulness. It's time we discover the footprints of God, the hand of God in the daily grind of life, for it will be the greatest discovery. So the downward road tells us that we don't need to be spectacular. God can use our ordinary lives as we consecrate ourselves to him faithfully. Thirdly, the downward road calls us to identify and not just stand out. So we see in verses 7 and 8, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus came in human likeness. He identified with all of humanity. So God, who is invisible and unseen, took on flesh so we could see him. The word incarnation seems like a fancy word, but it simply means in flesh. So the transcendent Christ who is apart from us, who is above us, who is in the heavens, takes on flesh so we can finally comprehend him. We can see him. We can feel him. We can understand him. And today we live in a generation that is called the post-Christian West. People grow up without a Christian worldview and have very little knowledge or no knowledge of the gospel. So they see the gospel as transcendent, something that is distant and far away. And what the gospel desperately needs is to put on flesh and be made visible so people can see, they can feel, and they can touch. That is being incarnational. 
Jesus identified with a broken and chaotic world. He lived in community with people and everywhere he went, he belonged. He never stuck out like a sore thumb. He visited homes, he ate with people, he blessed children. The leader of the church had time for people. Do we have time for people today? In our generation, we see busyness as a virtue. So we connect busyness and productivity. If we say we are not busy, it means that we are not productive. That's how the culture has made us to think. But no matter how busy we are, how influential we are, what positions we hold, we got to create space in our life for people. That is the incarnational model. And we cannot detach ourselves from people and call ourselves followers of Christ. That is going against Christ's way. So as Jesus identified with people, we ought to identify with others. As most of you know that we are in the month of Ramadan. You know, a decade ago, probably nobody in North America would know what Ramadan means. But today you go to Superstore and Walmart and they give you flyers which says Happy Ramadan. So people are very well aware of it. I was talking to this 14-year-old from Palestine who comes to our new Canadian Friendship Center. And he was telling me how he observes Ramadan. Has to get up at 3 a.m. in the morning so he can eat his food and drink water before sunrise. And then the next time he will eat and drink water is at 9 p.m. It's an 18-hour fast for one whole month. And you know why they do that? What is the purpose behind it? It's so that they can identify with the poor, the ones who are hungry and the thirsty. So you see these uh, Arab sheikhs in the Middle East, they are business tycoons, they have piles of money. And yet, during this month, they know what it means to starve, what it means to be hungry, and what it means to be thirsty. And the question I have for us as the Church of Jesus Christ is, do we know what it means to identify with the hungry and the thirsty? Do we know what it means to identify with a broken family? Do we know what it means to identify with somebody who is lonely, who is afflicted, who is suffering? Do we know what it means to identify with a new immigrant who comes into our country with no language skills and struggles his way through? We want to be healing instruments in the hands of God, but it will happen only when we learn to identify with the pain of people around us. That is being incarnational. Lastly, the downward road is the road to exaltation. The downward road is the road to exaltation. And this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible, verses 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As great is Jesus' humiliation, so is his exaltation. No higher place of honor than what Jesus has received. No higher power in the world than the power of Jesus, than the name of Jesus. 
And the exaltation of Jesus was a divine response. It wasn't Jesus who crowned himself. The Father did it. And inherent in this is a scriptural principle. When we humble ourselves in the sight of God, he will lift us up. Exaltation is a work of God. Not our efforts, not our charisma, not our excellence. But God is the one who can raise us up. I want you to put this passage in the first century context in order to grasp the full implications of it. Paul is making an audacious, blasphemous statement here. The name of Jesus, he's saying, is about every name. And before this name of Jesus, every knee would bow in acknowledgement. Every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The powerful autocratic Roman Empire was an imperial cult. The Roman Emperor Caesar was regarded and proclaimed as God before whom all knees will bow. There's a Roman inscription from 4th BC referring to Caesar Augustus and it says, he is the God made manifest, the universal savior of human life. This was the gospel of the Roman Empire. But God had a different gospel. He had a different plan. He had a different ending in his mind. It was Jesus who was going to be honored. And a small community of persecuted believers in this town of Philippi under the iron hand of the Roman Empire would proclaim that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. And their message was heard. And the imperial cult came to an end. Emperor worship ceased in Rome. And all of Rome bent their knees to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Christianity had become a state religion. In the world we live today, people do not believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. They are worshiping gods that are not worthy of worship. They are blinded by Satan and sin and materialism and they have created false gods and false religions and false ideologies. But there is one who is worthy of worship. His name is Jesus. And God's glorious mission is to bring everything under the universal lordship of Christ that every knee would bow before him in acknowledgement. Every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord. This is God's mission. It is exciting and spectacular and glorious. But what is even more exciting and even more glorious is that he would choose us, you and me, with all of our brokenness, with all of our failures, with all of our struggles to accomplish this glorious mission. God has indeed chosen the downward road as the road to exaltation. The question that I want to leave with us today is what do we need to do in order to walk in this downward road? The risen Jesus, our servant king, is present very much in this place. And if you had to ask him that question, how does this apply to my life? I believe he will whisper an answer to you. So as we come to an end of the service, I'm going to ask all of us to stand up because this is a time for you to respond.
And even as we stand up and maintain a moment of silence, the question I want you to bring to Jesus is what do I need to do in order to walk in this downward road? Would you maintain silence and listen to what Jesus has to say through his spirit? I know that Jesus is speaking to some of you. He is convicting you of your obsession with an upward lifestyle. And he's calling you to follow his example. Jesus is calling some of you to practice that humility and downward road in your marriage and in your family relationship. Jesus is asking some of us to give up our pride, our self-sufficiency, and rely on him. Whatever Jesus is speaking to us today, would you make a promise to respond to him in obedience to his voice? And yes, Lord, we come before you today knowing that you have spoken to us. We've heard your voice. And we want to respond to you in obedience. Would you give us grace? We ask our humble Jesus to come to us today just as you left the glories of heaven to reach out to us, even when we were far away from you, even when we were walking our own life, even when we did not love you, you first loved us. And now, Lord, as your people, teach us to walk in this way of incarnation. Help us to model it with our life, that we will not hold on to our rights and privileges but we would use it gladly to serve others. God, help us to identify with the needs of people around us, that we will become the visible gospel, the good news to people in our neighborhoods and in our communities. And I thank you for your glorious promise of your mission, your grand mission that will be accomplished because of your promise. We take delight in that. And today, we do bow our knees before you, Jesus. And we do want to confess with our mouth that you are Lord to the glory of the Father. And even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.